Welcome to our inaugural podcast for 2014. I'm Brian Kenney, and we're thrilled to have here as our first guest of the year on the business, one of the most creative thinkers in the world of technology and how it changes our society. Nick O'Mealy says, make no mistake, our lives will change as a result of the technologies that are at our doorstep this year. Nick O'Mealy runs the firm Echo Ditto, which is an internet strategy company. He's on the faculty of the Kennedy School of Government, and he's the author of The End of Big, How the Internet Makes David the New Goliath. It's a story about the institutions that Mealy believes are too big to survive. Big companies, manufacturing, law firms, governments, universities, armies, newspapers, and even big entertainment. It's also a story of how our institutions have not done a good job. And so when an institution's not doing a very good job at something, then that's an incentive to people to opt out. And our technology makes it easier than ever before to seek alternatives. And Nick O'Mealy says the alternatives are exciting, inventive, and flourishing, both here in America and abroad. There's a company in the UK called GifGaff, which is a mobile phone company. Everyone who works at the company is a customer. You earn minutes on your phone by doing customer service, by doing sales. Mm -hmm. So you might work an hour of customer service a week to bring down your phone bill by half. That's a kind of technology that wasn't possible before. It's becoming one of the largest phone, mobile phone companies in the UK. And so I think that the, you know, if you're a CEO or a leader of a large company, there's two kind of important lessons to take. One is to rethink your customers. Imagine they have more power to control your company than you do. Mm-hmm. And then figure out how to use that to your advantage in the production, in the marketing, in the customer support, whatever it is, you have to acknowledge the power people have with their internet connections and their smartphones and use it to your advantage. And the second thing you have to do, I think, is structure your org chart and your corporation to be nimble, to be fast moving, to navigate the digital world with the speed that your much, much smaller competitors will. Harvard Business Review did an article uh, last year talking about big data. One of the things they talked about was the emergence of this, this new role within large enterprises, the role of the data scientist. And they said it's the sexiest job to have now. Uh, so this is the person who takes all that big data and makes sense out of it for people. Is it possible that the Googles and the Facebooks of the world become the establishment at some point, even though their origins, as it's described in your book, was really about anti-establishment? Well, right now there are seven large internet companies that substantially control our online lives, right? Amazon, Apple, eBay, Facebook, Google, Skype, which is how Microsoft sneaks in, and Twitter. And all seven of those companies are built on the long tail of business. Think about NBC. NBC has, what, roughly 500 advertisers a year? Mm-hmm. How many advertisers does Google have? You know, like. 500 million advertisers. These big internet companies, their business models are predicated on like millions of small businesses and self-employed people using them to bootstrap their own operations. Google doesn't want a whole ton of advertising dollars from Procter & Gamble. It wants a whole ton of advertising dollars from every mom and pop store in the world. Right, that that's the way they get to any scale in terms of profitability. And so the very business dynamic of these big internet companies is as platform players, and that requires them to have the largest possible customer base going.
You quoted Jeff Hammerbarker, the co-founder of Cloudera and the book, as saying, the best minds of my generation are thinking about how to make people click ads. That sucks. I thought that was really illustrative, and it made me wonder, are there disruptors out there right now? Are, are the nerds of the future uh, you know, sitting at home trying to think about how they disrupt uh, the major platforms that you just described? Absolutely. Think about those big seven companies, right? Amazon has warehouses and trucks. Okay, well, that's actually kind of defensible. Apple has hardware, at least for now. But I look at eBay, Facebook, Google, Skype, Twitter. You know, every 18-year-old with 20 grand and a brilliant idea is potential risk. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> right? That's like a very precarious position to be in. To your mind, who's doing this right? If you think about the business landscape again, are, are there companies out there that have figured this out and that have made the right moves or are moving in the right direction? I, basi- I essentially would not want to be CEO of a large company because every day the advantages of scale are eroding away. How are the advantages of scale eroding? What does that mean? What, what does it mean to be a big company? Why do you want to be the biggest player in your space, right? You want to be able to move the market. You want to overcome barriers to entry. You want to uh, get to a scale where you can have efficiencies in price and uh, logistics that your competitors can't match. On pretty much all of those, a key mover of efficiency is technology. And the technology is getting cheaper and faster and easier to implement for smaller and smaller players, while bigger players are stuck with legacy systems and can't turn over on a dime, can't adopt a new system that might bring gigantic gains in fuel efficiency overnight. But don't bigger players also have the advantage of, um, if you think about going back to big data, we're all carrying smartphones. We're all giving away little pieces of ourselves every day to these large enterprises. They're taking that information and they're finding ways to use it. I mean, at some point, they do have a distinct advantage just from all of the information they've been able to amass about us. Most of the data being collected about us online, and we do live in a corporate surveillance state, Mm. but most of the data being collected about us online is by these big internet companies who are platform players, whose primary customers are actually the small companies, not the big ones. And so in that sense, Google takes all of the data they collect on each of us, which is mammoth and terrifying. Yeah. Uh, and they'll give it to you know the mom and pop store down the street for me as fast as they'll give it to any other paying advertiser. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't seem to me there are giant advantages to scale in data collection at this point. Mm -hmm. That's why the term big data is misleading because big data is accessible to a lot of small companies. You know, it's for sale. So how do you see some of these changes manifesting themselves in the workplace, you know, sort of in the immediate horizon? What's going to happen over the next 12 months or a couple of years? I think a number of the trends we've seen about self-employed, consultants, contractor, episodic work, working from home, all of that continues to accelerate and grow. But one place it's pretty glaring is actually in our public policy. I think a lot of the struggle around the Affordable Care Act mm. is trying to figure out what health care means when for the last you know, 50, 60 years, our public policy around health care has been employer-based. Mm-hmm. And for at least a decade, that hasn't been the reality for most Americans. And so our public policy can't figure out how to navigate a very different economy. And so I think that the next 
couple of years, especially as we head into the 2016 presidential, we're going to see political leaders and our policymakers struggle to understand what's happening in the economy and how to figure out policy solutions that are going to work for most Americans. We're a long way from any creative, interesting, compelling thinking that takes into account the reality of the current economy. Tell us a little bit about you know this movement around 3D printing. You've, you've said that this is something we should be paying attention to. What is 3D printing? 3D printing is maybe a little bit of a misnomer. Another way of, a more accurate way of talking about it is uh, on-demand fabrication. Okay. The 3D printing is a way cooler way to think about it. And uh, I have a, basically a spool of plastic thread, and I download a blueprint off the internet, mm-hmm. and I do f- go to the fine menu, and I say print, and then, it, and then it, it sprays, it melts the plastic and sprays it into the shape I've downloaded off the internet. Wow. My Cubex can print something the size of a basketball. Uh, I'll tell you a story. I have these two little boys who are in preschool, and they're growing very aggressively. <laughs> and I feel like we're tearing through shoe sizes. Right. And we have our first warm spring day predicted last April. And I wanted them to wear sandals outside. Mm-hmm. So instead of, you know, piling them into the car and driving them to the shoe store and that whole misery, I uh, downloaded some blueprints and overnight printed some sandals for my boys to wear outside. It was imperfect. It was curious. It was an experiment. I was trying to figure out how close this technology is to what I think of as my mom being able to use it. And it's pretty exciting. I just, I printed a new iPhone case. Uh It's biodegradable plastic. I put my name on it. I I also made it as a credit card holder. Wow, that is really cool. Yeah, it's kind of awesome. Yeah, it's sort of a slate color. It looks like a geometric design of some sort. Yeah, P.A. Mondrian inspired. Uh, (laughs) So do you have a a 3D printer in your home? I do. I have, uh, well, my wife uh, kicked it out of the home, and so it's in my office now. Uh (laughs) I feel like I should have my wife here to (laughs) offer the alternative (laughs) point of view on these things, like the uh, replacement dishwasher part I tried to print (laughs) uh, that ended up with a giant plumber's bill. Uh, I'd read all this stuff about 3D printing. It seemed kind of awesome. But my experience using it was that it's not quite like ready for every household in America to have one. But could I see this within the next decade? Absolutely. Within five years, I think that you could walk into many stores in America and order something and they'll print it right there. But there's a downside to this too, right? Because uh, we've been hearing about the ability of 3D printers to make weapons Three or four days after I printed those shoes for my boys, a guy in Texas put up uh, the blueprints to print all of the regulated pieces of an AR-15 assault rifle and an AK-47. Mm-hmm. And later he published the blueprints to print a completely 3D pistol. Uh, you need a couple screws from like the hardware store. And again, this just speaks to the way our institutions, our public policy are, are not on top of where the technology is going. So does the end of big mean the end of institutions as we know them? Oh, well, (laughs) when I look at our current era, I feel like we're at the beginning of a similar institutional shift that the institutions of the 20th century, including, you know, some of the world's largest corporations, I'm not sure they will persist into the 21st century. And the question I ask is, Is there anything that gets lost that we don't want lost? What do we want to make sure we carry forward as we reimagine the future, as we build new institutions? When the Roman Empire collapsed and we ended up with the Dark Ages, we lost a bunch of stuff. One of the things we lost for 
almost a thousand years was the knowledge of how to make cement. Hmm. And so as we're headed into what I think is going to be a number of decades of institutional fragileness of our institutions changing and reshaping themselves and trying to figure out what it means to be a large entity in the digital age. I think that the important question and what are the core values that we want to uh, champion, that we want to persist and protect? Are there people out there who are thinking that way? Do you see sort of visionaries who, who understand this? The moment we're living in, our institutions feel immutable. They feel powerful. I mean, I'm talking about the end of big, and aren't aren't our banks the biggest they've ever been, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But in fact, our culture is built around a kind of obsessiveness with the present moment, right? Right. That, That creates dangers in the sense of our history. And what I want to encourage and inspire is that we think about what kind of world we want to live in and what does that mean for our children and our grandchildren and what are our responsibilities and obligations. Nick O'Mealy, thank you for joining us. Thank you. You can find Professor Mealy's latest book, The End of Big, at endofbig.com. To see photos of the cell phone Nico showed me in the studio, the one he printed himself, go to hbs.edu slash thebusiness. Our next edition of The Business will be available January 28th. The subject, how to start a successful business in a country where corruption is commonplace and you just don't want to pay bribes. We'll go to Casablanca to talk to the owner of the real Rick's Cafe. Spoiler alert, she's nothing like this guy. Of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, she walks into mine. Of all the podcasts in all the world, thanks for listening to The Business, the official podcast of Harvard Business School. I'm Brian Kenny. I thought you're playing. Or just a little something of my own. I'll stop it. You know what I want to hear.